Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Hi, I'm Chris Barbie, PhD candidate in the Kevin Volta Lab. I'm here with James Dale, distinguished professor at the Institute for Future Environments at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. We are at the Plant Animal Genome Conference in San Diego, where Dr. James Dale just gave his talk on his genetically engineered and disease-resistant banana, which uh, completely filled the room and then some with people standing in the back, uh, spilling out outside, trying to peek their uh, heads in. I uh, did not come early enough to get a seat by rights, but uh, I sneaked around and I found kind of a hidden door off to the side, and so I, I got, I think, what was the, the last empty seat in the house. Uh, Dr. Dale's banana is genetically engineered to have full resistance to the most scary disease uh, for people cultivating bananas worldwide. Panama disease is a major threat. Uh, not just to the livelihoods of people in the developing world, but to their very lives. 85% of bananas produced worldwide are consumed domestically in the countries they're grown. So this is a, a major subsistence crop that people grow to live. Dr. Dale, please tell us, uh, what is the Cavendish banana, and why is Panama disease such a scary pathogen? Okay, well, Cavendish um, is actually a very, very old variety. Uh, it's probably around about 2,000 years old. Uh, maybe a bit more. Uh, funny part about it, it's one of the young banana varieties, being only 2,000 years old. Um, it's, it's, uh, it accounts for more than 50% of the bananas grown in the world. Single variety, single cultivar, uh, more than 50% of the bananas in the world, which is amazing. And virtually all of the export markets is based on cabbage. So it's an incredibly important variety. Um, it had a predecessor as a as an export banana, one one Gros Michel or Big Mike, uh, which was very widely grown in Central and South America, and 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 um, uh, history suggests that's even an even better banana. That's a sort of a, a romanticised banana cultivar. This wonderful Gros Michel, but it was wiped out by uh, Panama disease, but race one. So the reason that Cavendish ended up as the world's domestic uh, export, or, uh, export banana 
is because of Panama Disease Race 1. It's resistant to it. So, um, why is it so popular? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is, it's resistant to race one, okay? That's, that's, that's the most, one of the most important. It also is very high yielding. Um, it travels very well. Uh, so, you know, it can be harvested uh, green, it can be ripened on, a, on the banana boats and arrive in perfect condition to be sold in supermarkets. And it tastes okay. Most important thing is that there's no other banana like that in the world at the present time. So, so the bananas that most everybody has, has eaten throughout their whole lives, that's really a clone of the same individual. So we've been eating the same individual since the 1950s, basically. That's right. In the Western world. So in the Western world. In, in the developed world, yeah, we're, we're totally dependent on, on cabbage. When you go to uh, um, other parts of the world, particularly in Africa and Asia, you'll see a much greater diversity of bananas. So, for instance, we're doing some work in Uganda, they're cooking bananas, now as, as East African Highland bananas. Completely different. So Cavendish is not a, a variety name, it's a, like a group of cultivars, is that right? Yes, there are a whole lot of different types of Cavendish which are slightly different to one another. So there's Grand Name, which is very popular in Central and South America. Uh-huh. Uh, there's Williams Cavendish in Australia. Uh, it's slightly more robust, but, but probably not as high yielding. Um, there's Dwarf Cavendish, there's Valerie, so they're all these slight variants. Right, and so are, are all Cavendish varieties sterile triploids? Yep. So how did we get variation if they're all sterile triploids? Oh, just uh, somatic mutations as, as, as we propagated it over all these oh, years. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and, and clearly it would have been selected over time, so it's been kicking around for 2,000 years. Um, farmers being farmers, it doesn't matter whether they were 2,000 years ago or last week, would have selected out for particular mutations. Yeah, this one's slightly bigger, that one's slightly smaller. Yeah. I think most people who are conscientious about agriculture are aware of the disadvantages of, of monoculture where we grow the same species predominantly. So why is it that we do that, do it this way in banana? It's primarily because Cavendish and, and its predecessor, Ross Mitchell, was so productive. Bananas are a really cheap fruit. Uh, if we if we started to change over to a lot of the other cover, some of them terrific, beautiful flavour, but low yielding. Um, often they have very thin skin, so they don't travel well. When they ripen, they need to get really ripe before they're good, so they look awful. Mm. Uh, they taste fabulous. Um, yeah, the, the the developed world palate has been developed for Cavendish as a wonderful yellow banana. Um, spotless and quite good to eat and cheap. Uh-huh. Yes, uh, so, so in the 1950s, we were growing Grand Michel and then Panama disease race one happened. So what So what happened to banana growers in the 50s with that? Oh, a lot of banana growers went, went broke. Yeah, the, the, um, uh, the plantations in Central and South America, if you go back and you know, see some of the old photographs, absolutely devastated. Starting to see that again now with, with tropical race four. Uh-huh. And you know, they tried everything to control this disease. It's a sawborn disease, it's easily moved around in soil and materials and water and all those things. Um, and, and so you, you saw this dreadful devastation. It was only when somebody came up with the idea of growing cabbage uh, that suddenly that whole industry was, was revitalized. And now, with the advent of Tropical Race 4, these fears are becoming stoked again. It's like uh, yeah, revisiting history. Um, 
But this one uh, is probably a lot worse. Why is that? Because it kills most bananas in the world. So there's no there's no Cavendish to take over from Gros Michel now. Uh, and so we've got to do something different. Um, the Tropical Rage 4 doesn't only kill Cavendish, it kills a whole lot of other varieties as well. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we could lose a very large proportion of the uh, wide domestic so that brings us to genetic engineering. You identify a gene for resistance against tropical race 4 and you put it into Cavendish. Okay. So there are a whole lot of... Bananas aren't all triploid sterile. You go back into the wild where bananas originated and that's all the way from the sort of northern tip of Australia right throughout Southeast Asia, South Asia. Um, uh, you can find, still find the wild diploid bananas that progenitors. Now they, they, uh, they're seeded, they're seeded diploids, uh, and so they grow as, as most other seeded crops do. They grow from seed rather than uh, from suckers like we grow bananas now. Um, and so they've evolved with the pathogens. So the, the TR4 probably came from Southeast Asia, probably somewhere in Indonesia, but that's a really hotbed of genetic diversity in bananas as well. Um, so one of my former PhD students, uh, amazingly, was uh, doing a banana collecting expedition and they were up in Malaysia and they saw this wild diploid banana growing in a field that had been decimated by TR4. And so they collected seed from it and they brought that seed back to Australia quite legally um, and uh, they, they germinated some seeds from that, you know, six or eight seedlings, and found that it's segregated for resistance to tropical age So you had a PhD student walking a devastating... Former PhD student. <laughs> former PhD student, now some Nobel laureate probably, right? <laughs> he was walking through the field, a devastated field, and came across a banana tree yep. that, was, that had survived. And what, dug it out and blew it no, back? No, no, she just collected the seed because this was a wild Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So she collected the seed and, and brought it back to Australia. Uh-huh. So tell, tell us what it means that it's segregated 3 to 1 and why that's so important. Okay, so what it means is that when it segregates 3 to 1, it's almost certainly a single dominant gene. And so from our experience, even way back then, and we're talking 2001, 2002, um, that, that was a trigger that this was a classic resistance gene or R gene. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, and so that's that's so we, we decided to, and, and and the good thing is we had both resistant and susceptible siblings, so not, not, not identical but very closely related, but differing in their resistance to TR4. Uh, well, the obvious question is why was it better to use genetic engineering to put it into Cavendish rather than to breed a new banana from scratch? With this resistance, and that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, there are there are two strategies as, as to how we can increase the biodiversity of bananas. One is by conventional breeding; you can do that, but you can't breed from the current cultivars. Some people think you may be able to, but the likelihood is you can't. So, whatever you breed from is going to be very very different to cabbage. Uh, but but. That's going on, and that's really important for that to happen. The other strategy is a strategy we're doing, and saying, okay, there's all this wonderful biodiversity anyway. We've got Cavendish, we've got Ross Michel, probably got 150 other ones as right. well. 
that have various susceptibilities to disease. Why don't we just correct those those um, uh, failings in those bananas uh, and, and maintain that biodiversity as well? So, essentially, improve bananas that are already accepted in the marketplace. Okay. So, for the the molecular biologists who want to know, how did you identify which gene in in that in that seedling that you? got from that devastated field. How did you find the exact gene that conferred resistance? Can I say that uh, it was some molecular biology and a, and a big dosage of luck? <laughs> <laughs> That's usually the combination. <laughs> exactly. So what we did, and, and, and we're, we're going back so 15, 16 years, um, we amplified um, resistance genes based on uh, common sequences or intergenerate sequences. And so we pulled out a whole lot of different ones. We then went and pulled out the whole gene from those, and we ended up with a, quite a large panel of them. We then went to see whether those genes were present in, uh, in both resistant and susceptible. And unfortunately, they were all in both resistant and susceptible. Well, that's confusing. Yeah, that was very confusing. So then we said, you know, is there any difference to, to the way they're expressed? And so we looked in uh, leaf and root, uh, for expression and the level of messenger RNA in, in both resistant and susceptible. And one of them was only expressed in the resistant cultivar. Resistant siblings are not in the susceptible. Well, isn't that neat? So, so, they, so even disease-susceptible varieties technically are competent to be disease-resistant. They just haven't turned that resistance on. That's right. That's right. right. They have so the gene, but it wasn't turned on. Right. So you, you just gave it the, the already turned on version of the, of the, of the bananas closely related gene. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So what we did is we then pulled that gene out. Um, we, uh, we actually put a stronger promoter in front of it. We want to be absolutely certain that we, we were having a lot of difficulty pulling out the native promoter. And we now know why uh, that gene occurs in a, in a locus that has a whole lot of pseudogenes, very, very similar, and, and we never were able to pull out at that stage because we didn't have a good sequence genomes. Yeah, that's always a challenge with our genes. Yeah. They're often in these oh. tight clusters, a yeah. lot of similarity. Oh. Yeah, they, these regions are like boneyards of resistance genes that have been you know, defeated a long time ago. Yeah. They're really just sitting there doing nothing besides confusing scientists. <laughs> <laughs> must remember that. <laughs> yeah. So, or the other thing is that these are new ones just coming through. Um, so, you know, the, it's evolution both forward and backward. So, we never were able, able to get a, in those days, the native promoter out. So, we put a, a relatively strong promoter out, not too strong, and um, and then transformed brand name, Cavendish brand name. Okay, that's amazing. So, how far away are we from having this new transformed and disease-resistant version of Cavendish out there in the field for farmers? We've been through one field trial, which took us three years. We wanted to make sure that they were really resistant. We've just started a much larger field trial. That field trial is designed so that, uh, assuming all other things being equal, uh, that we'll be able to apply for deregulation for those bananas in Australia. So the timeline for us at the moment is four years. Luckily, the uh, deregulation process in Australia is very, very well defined. Uh, we've been down to talk to the regulator and, and get their advice on how we should do these things. Um, so that would be in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, anywhere else, we'd have to go and do the field trials 
in those countries, uh, recognising that these are genetically modified bananas. So yeah, I was going to say, deregulating for broad cultivation is very hard, but it's hard to just be deregulated to conduct a field trial. That's right. What kind, right. of, what kind of challenges have you had there? Oh, Australia's relatively straightforward. Oh, uh, so, so if you want to do, if you want to do GM, bananas are probably the best thing to do it with. They're sterile, or essentially sterile. Oh, I see. So there's no transgene flow. There's no worries about this, this transgene getting into anything else. They're big, so you know they're not easily blown around the place. Oh, that's handy. Yeah. Um, and so when when we um, when, when when we first applied for our, our GM banana field trials in Australia, a regulator said, this is nearly a lay down the Z, this is just so easy <laughs> compared to compared to canola or, or, oh, any, yeah, sure. or maize or whatever. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's and, a stroke of luck. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose the other important thing is, is uh, with these bananas, it's not only are bananas great from a GM perspective because there's no transgenes, but it's a banana gene. We've taken a gene from one banana and put it into another banana. Yeah, nothing less offensive than that. That's right. Yeah. So there's another strategy too. So we have this uh, banana disease resistance gene that we've transferred. There's also a, a SED9 gene. This is a really interesting strategy. So this is a gene, uh, an anti-cell death, an anti-apoptosis gene from a nematode. So yeah. Yeah. T- tell us the mechanism for how a nematode anti-cell death gene is able to give banana resistance to a fusarium will. Yeah, you just wouldn't believe that would happen. We were collaborating with a, a, a guy called Marty Dickman from Texas A&M University. Marty's a great guy, and we've had a lot of fun both doing science and other stuff as well. Um, and Marty is probably the, the lead guy on uh, apoptosis in plants, usually called programmed cell death, but it has a lot of the, the same hormones as apoptosis. Um, so we got together and he said, why don't we test these genes out in bananas, which we did. The, the, the uh, hypothesis is that rather than fusarium, uh, and that's the, the fungus that causes panama, rather than directly killing the cell, it actually induces programmed cell death or, or apoptosis. So the, the, the idea was, if you could block that step, Mm-hmm. then you should be able to Right, because fusarium world is like as a hemibiotropic right. pathogen. So that means it, 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 it kills the cell and then it wants to eat, eat that, that old debris, right? right? So, so if you can prevent the cell from getting killed, uh, you know, you, you save your banana and there's nothing for the fusarium world to eat. That's right. And so we do, at, at, at that stage there weren't any good candidates for anti-apoptosis genes in plants. Um, Marty had a whole panel of these anti-apoptosis genes, uh, of which probably the most innocuous was out of C. elegans, the one out of Nematode, set 9 So initially we, we did uh, glasshouse trials, but with race 1, and lo and behold, they are these bananas that were p- completely resistant. Resistant to, to race 1. To race that, 1. That is the original 1950s Panama disease. That's the one. That's the one. And so we put it into Grand Nain as well. We put it into Cavendish and took it through to the field and guess what? We had lines there that also were immune. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we probably, we're not, we're not continuing with that um, for, for two reasons. One is we've got a banana gene, so why would we go for a nematode gene instead of a banana gene? But also, um, we really don't know the, the broad implications of constitutively expressing a, an anti-apoptosis gene. Sure. Are we, for instance, creating susceptibility 
to a, a wire drive. Um, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh-huh. so we, we, we've shut down that whole HR response. Yeah, that's what makes biology so hard. You know, it's a really complicated system. You tweak one thing and you, yeah. know, you could break something somewhere else you didn't even think about. So, um, a really nice result, uh, and we've been really pleased with it, but that's where it stops from a practical perspective. Uh-huh. Well, one day perhaps we might have to return to that. You know, pathogens and, and crops are going to be locked in an internal struggle. It'll, it'll be an arms race forever. Oh, yeah. Fix is important. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> James Dale, thank you so much. It's been great. great. Yeah, your work is, is really inspiring. Thank oh, we're enjoying it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.